Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Thursday, January 25th, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given You can also get access to and download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so. You can give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone. Or you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. 
or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. If we get a comment or question, testimonial from you, we will address it on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you notification about what day and time that occurred so you can listen back to the archives for your feedback or input. And as I like to say, we greatly appreciate whenever anybody chooses to do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention that we have with this work is to be a service, and that's just a whole lot easier to do when we know how things are landing for you, what you're finding most beneficial, and um, and or what we might do to help you get more effective and efficient use or, or outcomes from the use of these tools. So uh, we've been reading The Way of Mastery, and I believe that I finished reading Lesson 8. So again, at the, the end of a lesson is always a really good time for people to bring comments, questions, uh, concerns, and um, so let us know what's happening for you. 563-999-3581. And what's, what's getting stirred up for you as we go through the way of mastery? And I believe we just finished lesson eight yesterday and the 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 topics of the 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 lessons that we've been through so far are number one the lesson is called the way that calls you home and it's all about the way of the heart and how it is not the way of the intellect and it's an invitation to start living your life from questioning and empty-headed not knowingness and asking to be shown moment to moment rather than living from the intellect and trying to assume that you're right and others are wrong. The second lesson is titled, You Create Your Experience. And here they're driving home what they brought up as the first axiom in lesson one, that you only experience the effects of your choices. And it's probably not your conscious logical mind choosing, but you have a soul, you have an unconscious, you have a connection to higher wisdom. And lesson two wants us to understand that Just as Guy Finley says, as goes my attention, so comes my experience. What I choose to focus on, what I choose to pay attention to, creates my experience of life. And then in the third lesson, they just take it to a whole different level and they refine it even more specifically and they say, listen, when you generate a perception, when you generate a judgment of any kind, you are creating 
a blockage, a veil, an obstruction in your perception that, that blocks you from seeing the truth of your life and the truth of the beings of brilliance and light that surround you. And in the third lesson is titled The Power of Forgiveness. And forgiveness is the actual process to dismantle a judgment, dismantle a perception, cancel everything you think you want, cancel everything you think you know, and leave a clean and open space for the Christ mind to come. Leave, leave a wide open space where you're not thinking hard, you're not evaluating, you're not judging, and ask to be shown something from a bigger, broader, deeper perspective, insight, intuition, inspiration, whatever you want to call it. And in that lesson, they highlight how without knowing it, every time we go into denial, when we deny the direct observation that we are creating our own experience in life, in that moment, projection happens. And now our mind tries to show us all of the evidence for how people and things outside of us are creating our upset or creating the things in our lives that we don't want. And it says, the more you use a process like the forgiveness process, the more you dismantle your judgments and your perception, the more you get to see the truth of your nature and the truth of everybody you interact with. And you get awakened to the fact that you've been coloring and distorting, fantasizing about people and never really connecting with them as people you're really just connecting with your fantasy of them, your image of them, your expectation of them. The fourth lesson is titled Following the Thread of Desire. And there's an entire lesson about how the energy of creation is moving through us all the time. And in our culture, we've been conditioned out of paying attention to that very powerful but subtle energy. And so it gives us some exercises to slow down and just keep asking, what is it I really want? Understanding that especially in the beginning when I'm trying to reconnect with that energy, I'll have all kinds of images and impulses and obsessions and urges come up. I don't need to act on any of them. I'm far better off if I don't act on them until I've really refined my ability to sense, to feel, to allow myself to be in connection with, in allowance and surrender, this energy of creation that wants to express uniquely through me in each moment. And once I get to the point where I can tune into that energy and stay tuned into it on a regular basis, it can become one of the most powerful, positive sources of, of input or information in my life as I choose to make decisions throughout life. The fifth lesson is 
titled Keys to the Kingdom. And it highlights everything about desire from the fourth lesson, because desire is the first key, and creation itself extends and expands because of this energy of desire. The second key is intention. And it's the idea of remaining focused on the energy of desire, the energy of creation that wants to express uniquely through you in the moment. It's the idea of undoing the conditioning of being distracted, waking up to how we've been conditioned and trained to get distracted from our true purpose and our creative source. The third key is allowance, which is a willingness to set up a vigilant observation pattern in myself for the earliest warning signs of tension or upset, and then just breathe and soften and release them. And when I do, that puts me in a space of allowance. And if I practice the first three keys, staying tuned to finding out what is this energy of desire, as it wants to express uniquely through me in each moment, what is my intention? How can I set up the habit of staying focused and release the habit pattern of being distracted and release the tensions and the constrictions and the judgments that come up in me so I stay in allowance? The more I practice those first three, the more I grow into a space of surrender. And from that space of surrender, it's just not possible for me to blame or judge people and things outside of me for anything that's unpleasant in my life. And I understand that of myself, I do nothing. And yet, all kinds of things can be done through me, that I can become a conduit for that creative energy expressing in form. And then the fifth key is humility, the recognition that it's not me doing any of this. It's life living me, not me living a life. It's this creative flow. It's the divine source. It's the divine mind. It's the one mind. It's the Christ mind. It's the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. It is not this collection of thoughts I have about Tim Hayes as a person with this education, with this height and weight, with this political affiliate. It's not any of that no political affiliation, that's not my true nature. My true nature is equal to everyone. The humility from the ancient Aramaic has me being in a place where I look for and see the highest and best in another and then choose to cooperate only with that, which means I'm coming from that space of the highest and best within me. And I'm choosing to align only with that. The sixth lesson is titled, Love Heals All Things. And the fact of the matter is, if you would know love, you need to know yourself, because you are this energy of love or creation expressing in form. And feeling is everything. You're living in a feeling dimension. It is most effective to allow your feelings, to learn to tune into them, 
to use them as a dagger counter or compass in your life to fully understand how they're being created and what they can teach you as emotional energies, as feeling energies. And then the seventh lesson is birthing the mind of Christ. It just says, essentially, look, you are this love, you are this energy of creation, you can be a completely transparent, wide-open conduit for the energy of love and creation in the world, and the only thing that can block your awareness of that is if you use the power of creation to generate fear. So whenever you generate fear, whenever you're having an experience of fear, and and, you're, and it's a psychological, emotional fear, you can instantly know it's wrong, it's false. And it's safe and extremely productive to cancel the fear, to see it as false, to regain control of your actions rather than let fear drive the bus. And the eighth lesson is talking about how every thought that you choose to value becomes a part of how you create your experience of life and you create what you're going to experience tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And they give the image of the still clear pool of water, which is like your awareness. And every time you choose a thought, it's like dropping a pebble into that pool. It creates ripples. Every thought you give value to sends out energy waves that interact with the quantum super, the quantum potential, or the people around you. And it's a creative force. And as it bounces off of the reality, the quantum potential, etc., and it ripples back to you, you get to live with the the effects of the choices you've made. You get to experience them. And it says, as one of the headings in that lesson, you are not a victim of the world you see. And yet, the more people talk about the thoughts that I choose and give value to are a creative force and they create ripples, the more people's minds are coming around to think, oh, I'm going to be a victim of all of the negativity that I've been practicing for the past 30 decades, 30 years, three decades. But it says you are not a victim of the world you see. So it seems like a paradox. And the ninth lesson is titled, All Events Are Neutral. And boy, does this clash with what most people have been taught and, and what most people would say has been their life experience. Because most people do not experience all events as neutral. 
So a lesson like this, it's titled All Events Are Neutral, seems like complete baloney. We've even had people in the support groups and on the radio show over the years, not a lot, but some who, who get quite agitated and angry about this and say that's dangerous talk. And the lesson is going to tell us about how it's possible to start observing that all events are neutral. One of the things that came to me a number of years ago was to talk about how our language creates all of these labels and values. Just think about the phrase, a natural disaster. What is a natural disaster? It's nature unfolding. Is nature unfolding disastrous? No, nature unfolding is just nature. It doesn't become a disaster until there's a human mind that decides to label it as such and give meaning to the word disaster and then project that onto a series of events that it's calling a natural disaster. And just watch watch what your mind wants to do with this. You mean a hurricane that wipes out all these houses and floods this whole area, that that's not a disaster? You want to fight about it. You know, are, are, are you saying in that same moment that those people do not uh, deserve government subsidies for rebuilding or that we shouldn't come together as a country and as a collective to rebuild the infrastructure in that area? No, we're not saying that. And we're just trying to talk about the label of the flow of life. In this case, it would be a hurricane or it would be a tornado or it would be a flood. And labeling it as a disaster, something negative with all kinds of negative connotations. Is that thing changed by what we call it? No. Is our experience of it changed by what we call it? Yes. This is to the point of Lesson 8. As we choose thoughts, and we choose to value thoughts that say things like, that's bad, that's wrong, that should never happen, then we create an experience of it. We create an impact in our lives based on the words and the energies that we pour into those words and the thoughts connected with those words. And in the next breath, in the next moment, anybody who's really paying attention can understand, you know what, it doesn't change the nature of the thing to call it something different. It does change the impact on the people who use those words. If I say, this is a natural event, it has one impact. If I say, this is a natural disaster, it has a different impact. So, this is how we can say, in, in this work, and they're, and they're calling us to observe for ourselves. We don't want anybody to believe this. We want people to start observing it for themselves. 
all events are neutral. And they're clear. Later on in the lesson it says, your thoughts about the events are not neutral. And yet, events themselves, the flow of life, is just the flow of life. This goes back to the thought about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's what created all the problems in their lives. Well, if you think about that as a literal story of the two original human beings in a garden, it doesn't make any sense to say all events are neutral because what they did by going against the creator and eating the apple and listening to the talking snake and all, but suspend all the disbelief about talking snakes and disembodied spirit beings that are gods and creators, etc. It just doesn't make any sense if you take that story literally to say all events are neutral. Because if you take that story literally, they ate an apple and that angered their God so much that he threw them out of the garden and made their lives miserable and cursed women to have pain and childbearing, blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on. But if you look at that story as a parable with multiple levels of meaning and you say, guess what? All events are neutral and the impact of those events on you has a certain flavor until you label it as good or bad, right and wrong. And as soon as you start judging, comparing, labeling, now you're removing yourself from direct experience of life. That's what causes the suffering. Not the event itself, but the judgment of it is good or bad, right or wrong. The the suffering on top of the disruption that comes when there's a need to react to something, like a broken bone or a natural event. So all events are neutral, and one of the ways that great teachings have been trying to get us to understand this, that my thoughts about an event are not neutral, but the event itself is neutral. We're going to see a few of those in in this Lesson 9. Lesson 9, again, is titled, All Events Are Neutral. And the text reads, I am your brother and your friend who looks upon you and sees nothing but the face of Christ within you. Christ is the firstborn of the Creator. That is, Christ is that which is begotten and not made. Christ is the Creator's creation. Christ is the holy child of creation. Christ is as a sunbeam to the sun radiating forever from the holy mind of what I have called Abba, or Father, or Creator. Therefore, I come to abide with you in perfect joy and in perfect freedom 
and in perfect reality. I come forth to join with that part of you that abides always in perfect knowledge, perfect peace, perfect knowingness, and in perfect union with your Creator. I come not to speak of things that you do not know. I come not to use words that do not already abide within you. I come not with the wisdom that you do not already contain. I come not with a love grander than that which already flowers within the silent places of your own heart. I come not to place myself above you. I come only to walk with you as an equal beside you. I come because I love you. I come because I am your friend. Of all the things that I could possibly choose to do with the unlimited power of consciousness, which has, by the way, been given equally unto me and my Father as it has been given unto you, of all the places and all the dimensions and all the worlds in which I could reside in this moment, I come to abide with you in this very now to bridge the gap that seems to yet separate you from me. In reality, all dimensions of creation reside in a space far smaller than the tip of a pin. In reality, all dimensions of creation are so vast that you could never measure them. In reality, there is no gap between where you are and where I am. This is why I can be no further from you than the width of a thought. But, oh, beloved friends, the power of a thought is the power to create universes and within universes to create yet more universes. And within those universes to create world upon world upon world upon world upon world. Your lived experience is that momentarily your attention seems to be focused on your unique world, which shares some things in common with many other beings. You have what is called in your world a consensus reality. We would say it's a consensus experience. It is born out of a universal reality. Beloved friends, even as you abide in your awareness in this moment, you are the creator of your experience. And you do this in so many ordinary ways. When you stand face-to-face -face with anyone for just a split second, and then you alter the position of the body through which you gaze upon them, you take up a new stance, a new perspective, and in a split second, you've created a new experience for yourself. When you look upon a friend, and the mind moves from neutrality, which, by the way, is where you begin every experience, and you move into the thought, 
That is my friend Mary. That is my friend St. Germain. That is my friend Peter. That is my friend Joanna. That is my friend Nathaniel. Whatever the name may be, as soon as you hold that thought, already you begin to change the experience. You are a literal creator in that moment. For when you name something, you define it according to the factors you have built into the name that you use. When you look upon a field of energy arising from the mystery of earth and you say the word tree, instantly you brought forth into your manifest experience everything you've ever decided is associated with the field of energy that you have called tree. In this way, your experience is entirely unique. It has never been before. It will never be again. Nothing can repeat it. That is why creation is forever new. Yes, you can stand with your friend and look upon a tree and nod your head and say, oh, of course, that's a tree. Yes, I see the branches and I see the leaves. Yet, as soon as you've named it, you've brought forth all the associations you've called to yourself, your experience of that field of energy that you have called tree. Rest assured, those people who are called environmentalists and those that you've labeled loggers, they definitely see a different experience, though they both use the same word, tree. Which one is right? Which one is wrong? This does not apply. In this lesson, we want to address another of the important pebbles that you must drop into the still clear pool of your awareness. That pebble is simply this. All webs of relationship, all energy fields are absolutely neutral. What creates experience is how you decide you will view that web of relationship, that field of energy. The effect of that decision is also completely neutral. Wait, but how can that be? For when a logger looks at the tree and sees only profit to be made, forests disappear. And when an environmentalist looks at a tree, the tree remains and the mighty owls and the birds have a place to make their home. Surely are we not to perpetuate the same reality, the same experience that all human beings have had? Is there not a loss when a forest disappears? Listen, listen well, listen carefully. All events are neutral. You are the one that places the value upon it. Now, does that mean that someone should become cold-hearted, unconscious, and blind to their actions? Of course not. For part of awakening means to realize one's interconnection with the web of all relationships. It means awakening a reverence for the mystery that is life, capital L, life. And it also means to release judgment of another who would view the tree differently. 
for you see the body that you have crystallized out of the field of infinite energy has but one purpose it is a communication device and it says in this book in several different places it's a very temporary communication device so here's the invitation let your primary perception your primary guiding light in your third dimensional experience be the following question what do I choose to communicate to the world with every gesture with every breath with every word spoken and with every decision made that is the invitation make that your guiding question what would I choose to communicate to the world with every gesture every breath every word spoken and every decision I make the text goes on and says for ceaselessly while the body lasts you are engaged in the process of communicating to the world what you have chosen to value you're communicating what you have called into your experience and what you have imbued with value this means that ceaselessly you are engaged in teaching the world what you believe holds the greatest truth and the greatest value when an environmentalist looks upon a logger and becomes exasperated and judges the logger or the logger or vice versa the body is being used to communicate the value of judgment that creates fear and contraction the result of many many minds choosing to value the right to judge is the effect that you call your world in which everything seems to be expressing conflict struggle the butting of heads and the Armageddon of opposite ideas running into each other and just beneath all of it all events remain completely neutral even if the force of your planet were completely taken away that would be a neutral event why because if all of the trees were gone if the very physical planet you call earth died dissolved from view life would continue life would merely create new worlds it does it all the time you do it all the time the events then that you experience are always neutral what you see occurring in the world around you remains neutral until you make the decision about what it will be for you you will name it and therefore you will define it when you define it you call all of the associations of that to yourself this is why I once taught it is very wise to forgive 70 times seven times it was for a very selfish reason if one wrongs you and you spend your energy convincing them that they have wronged you that you have a right to be angry and to be attacking in any way when that happens you call to yourself 
even to the cells of your body, you call to yourself the energy of conflict, judgment, war, death, disease, unhappiness, and separation. And you call it to yourself instantly. However, if you forgive, which means to dismantle your perceptions, dismantle your judgments, release your tensions, move into allowance and surrender, if you forgive 70 times 7, then in each of those moments of forgiveness, you call into your energy field that which reminds you of unconditional love, perfect peace, and a power that transcends anything that arises in the world. You call to yourself the reality of Christ. And all of it hinges on nothing more than the pebbles that you drop into the still clear pool of your mind. So that's what I'm going to read for today. We're we're ending there. We have plenty of time for comments, questions, refutations. How could you possibly say all events are neutral? There was a period of time in our Tuesday support group when we were going through the way of mastery, reading one lesson each week. And it just so happened that on the anniversary of 9-11, the Twin Towers getting blown up and a terrorist attack, it was a Tuesday, and that was our lesson that had come up in a rotation. And boy, did that stir the pot for a number of people. Because it wasn't that many years after the 9-11 event. And there were still a lot of intense emotions and judgments. And it was quite the little coincidence that I found myself reading this lesson in its entirety to a group of people in the United States of America who still had a lot of energy upset, a lot of judgment going around the events of 9-11. So 563-999-3581. Give us a call. Press 1 on your phone or type something in the chat room. What is your comment? What is your question about anything we've read so far in the way of mastery or specifically in this most recent lesson titled All Events Are Neutral? What, what is that stirring up for you? How can we help you first identify and then dismantle any judgments or tension or negativity around hearing that and or help you with a worksheet or a mind shifter to help you target the exploration of what that dynamic is within you. Remembering in the core of this work, I don't experience anything that I haven't created inside of me. Five six three nine 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 three five eight one. 
Area code 610. You're in the air. Hi, Dr. Tim. Um, wow, first, your voice sounds better. It, yeah, it's a lot better. I still have, I'm just getting rid of some stuff in the throat, but much, much better. Thank you. Um, your summary today was just great. The way you went right back and read through the chapters and what each one was about. I think we've talked about this before, but whenever you read any part of the way of mastery, it has morphed and it has become something fresh and new again. I recognize words now, you know, the pebbles, lots of um, world upon world upon... I remember you reading those things before, but I keep hearing them in new ways and I'm just curious I think if you kept doing that for the as long as I remain alive I would still hear new things so that has been great and the other thing is I feel as if in my own life I've been pushed into a state of constant vigilance watching the thoughts noticing the negative thoughts and I had a, a a hard you know family situation this morning uh, my youngest sister needed to be taken grocery shopping she's very poor poor health and she's really shouldn't be living alone even and now I'm in a position to be kind of a caretaker for her <clears throat> more than I would like to be because there are some personality things that I find hard. Of course, I'm looking at all this, looking at my judgments, my impatience. Oy, the lessons are like walking right beside me as I go through this situation in the family, but it's also happening across the board. Just everything goes through that filter now of, well, I could... I. I'll, I'll change directions and just say, um, I hope I can find it, yeah. On Michael's hour, he was asking people if they would like a mind shifter. And um, Selinda called in and asked, gave two numbers, and he gave her a mind shifter. And I texted Jeannie and I said, tell Michael I'd love him to give me a mind shifter for these numbers. That did that didn't happen, but the mind shifter so Linda got was fantastic. It was, it is safe and healing for me to invite the darker parts of my family to come to awareness and heal. Well, I don't need a different mind shifter. That'll do just fine. So when you mentioned doing mind shifters, that's a great tool for this. Um, to continue the work, to give yourself a mind shifter on any part of it seems to be a challenge. So I don't have exactly have a question. I don't know what this is. It's just an affirmation of what you're doing and how it's hard work. I find this very hard work because I know I'm in denial every time that impatience comes up. It's mainly frustration and impatience and feeling 
trapped by now I have another role. We grew up our grandkids, and now I have a sibling who's needing a lot of attention and help. And we've been taking care of her financially for years. I have a ton of judgments about all that. But anyway, just thanks for doing it. Well, you're very welcome and deserving. I appreciate the comments. I'm glad you're finding it useful. As I keep mentioning, sometimes it it is very difficult to know how things are landing for people, and it just makes it easier once we get some feedback. So I'll pick this up again tomorrow, and um, I appreciate your raising your hand. Anything else? Any last comments? No, I, I'm just listening. It's good. Thanks. Well, it is great to hear your voice be stronger and clearer. Keep up whatever you're doing to help that happen and come to full Thanks. vitality. <laughs> Thanks. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'll mute you so you can listen, and I will turn on area code 541. Yes, this is Celinda. Welcome. And I'm chuckling. <laughs> Thank you so much, Susan, for bringing um, some of my feelings into clarity. I'm just really thankful for your contribution and that you're feeling better. Um, that mind shifter that you mentioned was um, is very challenging for me because I have hidden my emotions for so long, just stuffed them in my unconscious. And so I keep writing the mind shifter over and over, um, and I don't feel much. I don't feel um, little snippets of memory are starting to come up, but they're not associated with anything, and I don't really understand them that well because I don't have enough pieces in the puzzle or dots to connect. Um, and perhaps you could help with that. Basically, what I'm experiencing is rage and fear, uh, about being safe, and it uh, manifests in many different ways. And so um, I'm, I can't even quite put a worksheet around it yet. Uh, so any suggestions you have, Dr. Tim? And um, well, the, the, the biggest the, the biggest suggestion is that you just carve out the time to sit with that sentence stem or mind shift or whatever you want to call it. And you have all the distractions turned off. You have all of the, you know, phone and everything is turned off. There's no music or meditation and stuff going. You're just alone with yourself and that statement. And you just keep rewriting it and then take a breath and notice what wants to answer it. And if when you write it, all you have is a flood of emotions, you just write that down. Now I just flooded with fear. Now I just flooded with anger. And then breathe and soften. Notice where you feel it in your body. Make any notes about that. And then rewrite the statement. And when you stay in that process of writing the statement and letting yourself free associate to it, letting energies bubble up in you, and then write about what just bubbled up, even if it's confusion, even if it's going blank, and then take another breath and get centered, and then rewrite the sentence. It's like banging a tuning fork and holding it to your unconscious. And anything in your unconscious that 
resonates with that same frequency of energy is going to have energy added to it until it bursts through the barrier that's been created that keeps it out of your conscious awareness. So that's all. That's all. Just yes. be, be willing to continue that process and label whatever comes up, whatever experience you have, as a success rather than saying, well, it's not working or I'm not getting anything. You're all, you are getting something, especially when you say you have fear and anger come up. And uh, I am doing that whenever I have an opportunity and I have some quiet, some space, some silence, uh, some solitude. I keep writing that. And when I don't, I keep saying that affirmation over and over in my head and noticing what happens. Uh, What happens is I will most likely feel nothing. Maybe a little memory will pop up. But then I'll wake up in the morning and I just have this sensation or this memory or this question that pops up. And so I'm writing those down, too, along well, with my and, affirmation. And the other thing that comes to mind when I hear you say, every opportunity I get, that is a trap. And we've talked about this extensively for years in the last 13 years of doing this show. If I say, well, I'll try to find time to do that, it doesn't happen. I don't make time to do it. I don't make time. There is just life. What I have to become aware of is how am I choosing to use my time? Some people like to use the phrase, I will carve out time to do this. Some people say, I will make this a priority. I will spend this hour doing this. If I wait until there's an opportunity or, you know, until I find the time, it never happens because you don't find time. You have time and you're choosing to use it in one one way or another. And when you wake up to that, then you can be conscious about your choice. Gotcha. I'll go practice that. All right. Well, good luck with that. I look forward to hearing what it stirs up for you. I will mute you so you can listen to our second hour. The second hour today is going to be an audio file because Michael is traveling. So um, today... We're going to play something called the Kaburis Show. And I don't know what that is, but I'm looking for the file here. So I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. This is your second hour. People interested in the Kaburis Manuscript, there are the, if you click on Kaburis Manuscript, you can go to the Enlightenment. You can see the history of the Kaboras. There's pictures. There's uh, every page of the Kaboras and an introduction to it. There's all kinds of information there about that manuscript. And that is, it was found on the Kabor River. And that's what the translation has been, uh, what has been done has been done out of the Kaboras. And that's the text that um, we use. 
So Michael has now joined us, so I'll welcome Michael. Thank you, dear heart. And uh, I just caught the tail end. I had trouble dialing in today. Uh, so I just caught the tail end of the discussion about the divorce. Uh, there's some questions about it. You've gone silent, Jeannie. You must have pushed, pushed your mute button. Well, I'm sitting here talking with my mute button on. Um, <laughs> so, no, there wasn't a question about it. I was just filling in time until you got on on the switchboard and pointing out things that are on our website that a lot of people maybe don't click and, you know, what they can find and, and uh, information that's out there for free. And so I was just pointing that out. So there's um, nobody Sweet. but me in the chat room, and there's no questions, no hands up on the switchboard. Well, let's talk about the Caboose a little bit. And uh, there's a gentleman named Dan McDougall. Everybody called him Mr. Mac. And uh, he was an attorney in Atlanta and became interested. Actually, he was doing some work with uh, a spy agency in England and the British intelligence suggested it was a, a, a thing. As an attorney, for him, it was a, there was a deep interest in how people can lie and really appear to believe their lies are true and then do behaviors that go flat in the face of everything they've committed to and everything that they've, they say, but doing the exact opposite, much as we're seeing you know, a whole lot of that happening in the political process today. So that's what got Dan interested in British intelligence said, well, if you're going to resolve this problem, here's the place to test it. And if you can resolve it here, then you'll resolve it in the world. And so he started to work with the first century Aramaic language uh, in resolving conflict with truth with prisoners, and that was Dan's interest. And they were working actually initially with a seventh-century text of um, based in the Aramaic language, and that text was incomplete. It was called the Yonan Codex. You might see some reference to that, and, and in fact, there's some conflicting information around where one person in particular who's a, a fairly well-known aramicist was really knocking the Kaboris, but then he found out, and I actually ended up presenting him the Kaboris. He's like, oh, this isn't the manuscript I was talking about. He had confused the Yonan with the Kaboris. So Dan funded an expedition to go to the Middle East and find an earlier complete text because the 7th century text, of course, had gone through several centuries, and, uh, and it was not complete. So he found a complete eastern canon of the New Testament uh, in a monastery on the Kaipur River in Turkey. If you go to uh, yagen.org, our website, Jenny was talking about that, you can click on the Kabors manuscript and you'll see pictures of it. There are actually pictures of every page in the manuscript. It's beautiful. And there's some pictures of when I brought it to Heartland as I was traveling and, uh, and working with uh, getting high-resolution images made of the manuscript so that we could preserve it and uh, do a deeper level of work in it. So, so Dan worked with that, and Dan and I met and discovered our mutual interest in the Aramaic language, in, this, in particular the Aramaic teachings of Yeshua. And uh, we discovered that we had been traveling parallel roads. I had 
developed a thing called Lessons in Living. Actually, it's still being taught down in a school where I started it though 35 years ago in South Florida, in, uh, in um, Delray Beach at the Unity Center there. And uh, Dan was teaching a thing called Emotional Maturity Instruction, which he had developed for the prisons. Our mutual interest, we discovered that we had been traveling similar paths, but similar but different paths, working with the Aramaic, and mine was more oriented being a naturopath with the health uh, direction, and his was more oriented to the um, justice system. And we married our work, and the result of that, we put the, uh, the work together and, and developed a course called Laws of Living, Teaching in February, and that's based on, in particular, the work of 25 translators. Uh, 25 of the world's top aramicists worked on the Kabor's manuscript, actually back in the 70s until the project ran out of money. The manuscript itself was put on the shelf at that point, and when I became involved, that's when we took it down off the shelf. We're looking to get high-resolution images made so that um, the text could be preserved. And uh, so if you're interested in a deeper look at the Aramaic, then you might want to think about the uh, Laws of Living Intensive that we'll be doing. It, uh, it will be here in southwest Virginia, eastern Tennessee area, about, about 15, 20 minutes from Bristol, Tennessee, Virginia. It's a split city. Actually, if you drive down, if somebody drives down the main street of, uh, of the town of Bristol, uh, the center line on the road is the, uh, the state line. And so if they weave, they're drunk and they weave, they can get tickets in two states. So, so we're on the Virginia side, and then about 15 minutes up the road, there's a really beautiful retreat center uh, called Jubilee House, and we'll be doing a 16-day residential intensive, Laws of Living, at Jubilee House. And it's done in a whole, if you've done a, a, uh, some of the other intensives, it's done in a whole different way from our normal intensive work. We uh, we do it in the Socratic method of questions. There's a, a uh, text about 250 pages that we go through their essays or several different tools that we uh, introduce. And we're looking to understand, and many people have this understanding of law as the rule of a superior. Kings want you to believe that when a king says go, his word is law. You've maybe even heard that from one of your parents. My word is law in this house as the law with the rule of a superior. And most of the so-called justice system works on that premise, but it's a totally false premise. That's not what law means at all in the original first century Aramaic. And our laws of living course is not about, well, here's a set of rules that some creator somewhere says you better obey or you're in trouble. Uh, you'll be punished or you know, chastised or what have you, rejected, excommunicated, well, whatever. But rather... The word law represents an understanding of the energy system in which we live, move, and have our being, our relationship with those energy forces, and how they work. You know, an example of that would be the law of gravity. You know, the law of gravity operates whether you like it or not. It's independent of any rule maker. It's just the way the gravity system works. You know, if you if you fly an airplane, 
you don't violate the law of gravity. Well, of course, you have to violate the law of gravity, Michael, to take a machine that's heavier than air and make it fly. Well, no, actually, you don't. You create forces called propulsion that are stronger than the forces created by the law of gravity and your airplane flies. If you violate the way it works for one second in that airplane, that airplane crashes. If you violate the way the energy field works in relationship to health for one second, then health begins to crash. If you violate the way the energy field works in regard to nutrition, and we go into nutrition deeply in this course, then the energy field begins to crash. If you violate the way that sexuality works, then your sexuality, your life will begin to you know, in each area, there are laws. And it's not about obeying some superior. It's about here's how the eternal energy forces work. And you come into conscious relationship with them, just like the engineer comes into conscious relationship with gravity. You get to fly airplanes. You get to go to space. How cool is that? But only because you understood how those eternal forces operated and you lived in harmony with those eternal forces, knowing that to violate them for one second was destruction. And, and it's the same. And, it isn't, and the destruction isn't about being punished. It's just about here's how the energy field works. And sadly, when the Aramaic language, when the, you know, it's, and it's interesting, that language in which the Kabors is written is the root language of six, at least six of the world's major religions. And there's a reason for that, and it's got nothing to do with religion. It, has a, it is a language that has a comprehension of how these eternal forces operate and how to come, come into relationship with and understand that. But the misinterpretation and the mistranslation of those words, and we go back and we listen to uh, Vladimir Lenin, he says, if you change the meaning of a culture's words, you can destroy that culture. Why would that be? Because culture is transferred among humans by and large via words. If you have different meanings in your brain cells for a particular set of words, then the words that describe accurately how these eternal forces operate, then you can never come into relationship with those eternal forces using the meanings of those words. And virtually every major key word that's important to life has been changed by the Greeks. For instance, law. It's been made into the rule of a superior. Nothing to do with it. And, you know, when I introduce people first to the Aramaic, and it's been a while since I've shared this story on the show, so I'll share it at this moment. I, I, I tell a story about, you know, imagine that uh, you know, we're doing a, a week of workshops at a particular location, and we hear from a fellow in Russia who wants to come in and join us for the workshops. And let's imagine you are the best translator of Russian into English and English into Russian in the world. You are the best. And I know that you're coming to the workshops and that you live locally and you're going to be uh, attending the workshops. And I know you have an extra room in your house. So I communicate to you. We heard from this fellow in Russia. He only speaks Russian and he wants to come to the workshops. Would you house him and, you know, transport him and translate for him? And you say, I'd be delighted to. And over the period of the week, you and I get together, and, and he gets together, the group that's attending the workshop, we have dinner, maybe have lunch once or twice, and it's just great. We do the uh, Mind Shifters and Stillboard Breathing on Saturday, we have an awesome result. He just gets this huge opening and is so delighted with it. 
and as you're getting ready to take him back to the airport, I want to communicate to this man how deeply I regard him, and, and I ask him if you would please tell him that he's really cool. And you say, sure, I'll tell him. And you turn to him in your best Russian, and you say to him, Michael thinks you've got a low body temperature. You translated my words perfectly. You didn't say anything about what I meant, but you translated my words perfectly. Oh, yes, yeah, some of those Greek translators were some of the finest in the world, but they didn't have a clue the meaning of the idioms in the Aramaic that are key to understanding the culture that lives in harmony with these laws. That is, lives in harmony with the way this energy system works, mentally, physically, emotionally, sexually, relationship, financial, every arena, there are laws for how the system works. Violate the laws, you're in trouble. There's difficulty. Not because the superior said, look at this, you broke my rules. No, no. So we distinguish all of that and build, help people to build the brain cells and engage in exercises for moving the brainwashed part of the mind out of the way, that is forgiveness, first century Aramaic forgiveness, has to do with undoing the information within us that is of a destructive nature that uh, allows us to misinterpret and misunderstand. You know, what would the guy who hears, I think he's got a little body temperature, think when you tell him that? What would he think of me? Does he think I'm, you know, who I think I am? How do I dare tell him he's got, you know, what, what? what might go on in his mind. And so we have this misinterpretation that is universal of so many key words. And so laws of living is about straightening out those definitions and providing tools for cleaning up the mind and getting back into harmony with living as truly as a human being. If you're back to Yeshua, you'll notice, well, most of the churches have this really important dogma and I think we're at about 32,000 sects of Christianity, each with a different dogma. Here's what I believe it meant. This is the dogma in order to be part of our church that you have to believe. And by the way, if you don't believe this, this eternal punisher is going to send you to a hot, fiery place for life. Dogma, doctrine. You'll notice that Yeshua had a different purpose. What did Yeshua say? He said, I come to bring you life, and life more abundantly. His purpose was not to teach you some kind of religious doctrine or dogma. His purpose was to bring you an understanding through words and tools how to live as a human being. And what is a human being? And this is our whole purpose of laws of living. It's the purpose of everything we do. <clears throat> Pardon me. What is a human being? Well, that definition has been so distorted that it includes all kinds of crazy things, but I would offer that. <clears throat> Most of what the world believes about human beings, you know, when, when people are frail and faulty and do something, they say, well, after all, I'm only human. Well, that's all falsehood. That's all based in the same kind of misunderstanding of you've got a low body temperature. Hold a newborn child and you get to experience what human life is. 
When you hold that newborn child, notice that the newborn is not loving you. This is another word that's been mistranslated. We're told, oh, you're supposed to love your neighbor. Yeshua never said that. Hold the newborn. Is the newborn loving you or is the newborn love? No question about it. The newborn is love. Yeshua said, I come to bring you that, life, and life more abundantly. You'll notice the, the repeated references to love, and the Greeks translated into, and, you know, how many crazy different things do we have about love in this culture? Love is sexual athletics. Love is put your head on the chopping block so I can cut it off and abuse you, and you can say, oh, look, I sacrifice for you. All kinds of insane definitions of love. When the truth is, love is the essence of human life. It is a state of being. It is what we are. And Yeshua, we could restate his words about the purpose of his life and his work. He says, I come to bring you the experience of living as love and bring that experience more abundantly. In other words, filling every gap in every moment of your life. And that's how human life works. When, when they, you, know, you hear them, the disciples saying, well, you know, you're telling us all this stuff. What, what's most important in all this stuff you're teaching us? What's number one? Did he say love your neighbor? No. The Greeks tell us he said love your neighbor. And the Greeks went off in a direction. And now in the name of loving our neighbors, what do we have? Religious wars, left, right, center, up, down, rejection, murder, I mean, mayhem. What he said was not love your neighbor, love the creator as yourself. In Aramaic, first century language, properly translated, he said, maintain rock as a filter in the frontal lobes of the brain. The Greeks mistranslated that as love the same way as our translator told our Russian friend he has a low body temperature. As he translated my words, I think you're really cool, meaning I think you're the cat's meow, you're awesome, you're wonderful. But now it's become a low body temperature kind of thing. It's just totally distorted. And so what Yeshua said is maintain this condition of Rachma, which in Aramaic is a gateway in the frontal lobes of the brain that is the entryway for human life into human form and keeps the human mind on track with its true nature, which is love. If hostility or fear rears its head and you do behaviors based in hostility or fear, you have violated the laws for living a human life. Now, that doesn't mean that some superior is peeved at you because you didn't do what you were told to do. It just means that you've stepped out of harmony with, which, with that which causes a human life to go forward and be maintained. And if you do that, you can't have life more abundantly. So it's, and it, you know, Grady made the point, I think it was Grady made the point on yesterday's show about just how this work is so imminent it's here it's not about some afterlife it's not about some esoteric something it's the truth of how we live today in relationship with each other as human beings and stop the lie that we're when we're in hostility and fear and puking on somebody else when we're being pissy with somebody else that it's their fault and they deserved it 
and stop the conversations about them and start having a conversation about yourself and clean up your own mind because if you don't, you throw away through hostility and fear your own human life and your own human physiology will start to fall apart. And the result of that is death. What was that statement? The wages of sin is death. Now, what did the Greeks translate that one as? Oh, if you do something that this superior doesn't like, then you are going to die. You know, just, the creator's going to get you. Understanding, the understanding that makes it imminent in life, that if I engage in energies that are off the mark, the word sin in Aramaic is an archery term, and it simply means you miss the bullseye. So if I engage in energy that's off the mark, the result is, if I continue to do that, I will die because I put disintegrative energies into my tissue structure each time I quote unquote sin, each time I engage in hate and fear and rage and guilt and grief and and gossip and slander and vengeance and abuse of my neighbor or myself or my spouse or my children or my parents. Instead of maintaining rachma and understanding the imminent domain of the law. Ah, when I keep this gateway open, I stay in touch with, I live in relationship with the truth of who I am. I live as love, as I am. And when hostility or fear comes up in me, I and, and I recognize that it's a generational pattern that tends to run my life. In fact, it's mostly a power person dynamic that runs my life. Then I apply forgiveness. Nothing somebody else off the hook for what they need or because I'm in violation of the energy that I live, move, and have my being in. But as I remove the energy that violates, then healing occurs and a whole different game starts to happen. And so that's what we're here to understand in the, uh, the Kaburis, or from the Kaburis and from the first century teachings of Man and Yeshua. Picture of uh, a little bit about the manuscript and, and what the core of it's about. And our objective, of course, with this work is to enter into the practice of functioning as the conscious active presence of love 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and to be able to hold that space for each other whenever any of us has fallen out of harmony. And, of course, you go back and, you know, the Greeks will beat you up over this one. And say, well, we've all fallen short. Yeah, we've all fallen out of harmony with how the energy system works. Does that mean somebody deserves to be condemned? No but rather that we're in the space of holding to active love to assist in the support and the repair of whatever's going on in the energy system that might be off base. And so, you know, the whole objective of an intensive, uh, we've had you know, several people from uh, last summer's intensives calling into the show on occasion, and the support that's there and developing for each other as those layers that perhaps, you know, haven't been looked at in a hundred generations in any of our bloodlines. As each individual says, okay, wow, I start to look back. Jeannie and I uh, went to uh, the movies last night and and saw the film uh, Judy. um, Oh, my brain's gone on her name. Um, Garland. Judy, Judy Garland. Judy Garland. 
Uh, awesome film. Uh, both of us ended up in tears toward the end of it to to watch how this young girl from Michigan somewhere was discovered and uh, how the uh, movie studios uh, executives basically manipulated her into becoming a child star. She starred in, you know, true story. She starred in uh, um, the wizard of Oz as Dorothy and, you know, they forced her to become as a young child drug dependent because they were afraid she'd put on weight partway through the film and she couldn't do that. So, you know, there's one scene where she's sitting with Mickey Rooney there. She's got a crush on Mickey Rooney and he's eating a hamburger. They're in a restaurant and she has a matron who kind of looks over her, you know, takes care of her for the studio and she wants a bite of his hamburger and the matron goes, no, you know, you can't get fat while you're doing this movie and hands her an, an amphetamine pill. This is your lunch and hooks her on pills and the rest of her life is drug addiction and the challenges she goes through and at the age of 47 was dead of an overdose. Abuse that started in early childhood, the lack of rock and the lack of love and the pursuit of money, how bizarre. It's very touching and it very distinctly shows how when she went through, I think, five different marriages and each time she was married, the, the power person shows how the studio executive just degrades her and drags her through the dirt to force her to do his bidding in this movie. And the power person, then, I mean, you see it being instilled in her mind. You know, here's somebody who's got more control over her life than she does. He's always threatening her with taking away her her movie, you know, life that's going to be her future that will be so wonderful for her ends up being a tragedy. And what does she do in her marriages when the stress is up? She turns to the same kind of abuse that was done to her and ended up at 47 dead from a drug overdose. Bizarre. And how do we repair a life like that? Well, you step in and piece by piece by piece, you undo the power person dynamics. You live in a space where you're willing to be responsible for those dynamics. You're willing to be supportive in healing them. You're willing to confront them, although it's not Dr. Feelgood. You're willing to step out of the uh, defense mechanisms that the power person used, which is usually some form of attack or what have you, or degradation that's used, vicious energy towards others, especially those who are closest. You have to own those and choose to begin to forgive, to remove those energetic patterns, to step into still another place in the whole body of work. The reason for this show is to be here of support for moving through those things. And so we're here to hold the space and uh, uh, appreciate each of you who's there to really truly be the space for the process that each of us are going through as this healing unfolds. And speaking of healing, I, I got a call from a friend of mine last night, uh, and uh, he was sharing that he just had a diagnosis uh, from his medical doctor that uh, left him in a pretty traumatic place. His name is Steve. And I'll just ask everybody to uh, you know, just tap into Steve's energy and everyone here participating in tensors and such as developing intuition so we can stand in that space of active present love and just 
see Steve's chest and lungs being radiated with the active presence of love that um, whatever anomalies are going on in tissue and they don't they don't have it down to an exact diagnosis they've given them two or three scary things that might be going on and uh, he's a deep friend of this work has done this work for several decades used to be a participant in, in our workshops in Florida way back in the early days of developing this work. So, Steve, we cherish you, we honor you, we hold the space for you, and especially for, you know, if there's any kind of mental, emotional component involved with what's happening in your physiology, we hold that that can uh, be forgiven, be removed, and totally reorganize your energy system. Awesome, perfect, vital health. Steve's just this really this awesome man that's uh, been around in my world for the last uh, 30, almost 40 years. And uh, so we care for him deeply and and Steve, we hold the space for for your healing. And anyone else that's facing uh, financial relationship, emotional, physical challenges, we hold the space for healing. And it is that awesome presence of of true active love that when it comes forward enters into the space of physiology where distortions have occurred or into emotions where distortions have occurred or into the mind where distortions have occurred and reorganizes that structure into health and wholeness. You know, the whole bottom line of healing, you know, having done this work for almost 50 years, I can think back to a point maybe, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago when I started really questioning what what is healing? What, what is it that makes the difference? What on, on the occasions where I've seen people who have head issues that are really, in, in the normal sense of the world, absolutely unresolvable. And as I started to question and ask to be shown, what what is it? What creates that change in energy? What became clear to me as I looked back over the previous couple of decades of doing this work is each time I saw someone making that kind of monumental shift, two things had occurred. Something that was in hiding within the mind, something that someone had been in denial of. And remember our definition of denial is when I think or speak as though something outside of me is the cause of something inside of me. So the bottom line of healing is that when one can step out of denial and allow, if there's pain in your structure, you're in denial. That's just the way it is. And so are you willing to step into a space of opening that part of your mind? And it might mean facing some pretty deep power person dynamics. Are you willing to open that and to let that energy come forward in the presence of love? And and you can't do that without the willingness to look at what's there. You know, oftentimes people will feel attacked if they're shown where their deficiency or their weakness is. When, in fact, the idea is to just look at the truth and to be able to see truly what's going on and have access to that deeper hidden part of the mind. There's no idea of attack and saying, gee, did you notice that you did thus and so? Now, the average person, when you show them where the blockage of truth is, they'll go into attack mode and puke on you for how dare you say such a thing. It's not what it's about. 
It's about you have to be able to look what your energy field is doing and see the truth of it in order to bring correction. So what became very clear to me is that when someone was able to bring something out of hiding in their, in their minds, which is their body literally, and bring that energy forward in the presence of active love, and I mean that love has to be conscious, active, and present. Human life has to be in conscious awareness and operating in that space. And when that love is present and we willingly step into looking at the dis-ease energy, instead of feeling attacked when we're shown what where our blockage is, to go, oh, is it possible that I'm blocking in that? Well, gee, you know, 87 different times with 42 different people, I've been all pissy and, and, and moany with other people and blaming them when, I, when that happens. So maybe I need to look at that. And when I look at that and I let the raw core energy come to the surface in the presence of love, then healing occurs. And there is no tool that I know of on planet Earth besides first century Aramaic forgiveness that empowers people to consistently, persistently do that. Yes, there are accidental ways that people stumble across it and they get a piece of healing and not understanding the principle involved, they often go off in some direction that doesn't have anything to do with the truth. But the bottom line truth of it is if there's a hidden or dissociated part of the mind that I'm willing to receive feedback about and willing to allow it to come forward in the presence of active love, then healing occurs. And it doesn't matter where the energy is in tissue. If it's anywhere in your tissue structure and there's a disease going on, that disease can heal absolutely instantly on the spot. I've seen it happen over and over and over and over again. Yes, right up to including cancers. But the unwillingness to live, love truth and let the truth come forward and look at it locks the disintegrative energy wherever it is in tissue. And that's the part of your structure that will keep nagging even pain because there's an energy there that doesn't belong. Willingness allows it to come forward in the presence of love. Dissolution, forgiveness is the dissolution of that energy. And so that's what we're here to support. That's what we're here to understand. That's a basic bottom line of healing from the first century Aramaic language. And you go back to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, and this man was a physicist. This man was a psychologist. This man was not a theologian. He was a geneticist. He understood how the energy system worked. When they said the wages of sin is death, there was no threat in that whatsoever. It's just, here's how it works. You put an energy in that doesn't belong, and you, the tissue that it's in begins to fall apart. You get enough of that happening, and you die Forgiveness is to drop into that part of your own mind and remove the part that holds that hostility or fear, rage, guilt, grief, whatever it happens to be. And so that's the bottom line of healing, and that's what we're here to support, and we're delighted that you're here to be part of the process. And, of course, the idea of the show is to be here as a space to open questions and to empower people by tapping into that first century Aramaic information and understanding. And, uh, you know, not many people are going to spend 
Uh, for me, the Aramaic specifically, I started working with that about 40 years ago. I was engaged in this work for approximately 10 years before that. But when I came into contact with the Aramaic, that was like the next huge opening and the next step. And so I've basically spent 40 years full-time understanding the healing aspect, not the philosophical, not the theological, but the healing aspect of that first century teaching of this man named Yeshua. And we're here to support you. You're probably not going to spend 40 years of your life full-time putting that all together. And so we're here to offer the best answers that we've got and support the process. And, and in this work, we define processing as the ability to keep love conscious, active, and present when something less than love comes up, to allow that which is less than love to come forward, and to stop the focus on everybody else as the problem in your life and start to own that, here I am. I'm the one's in pain. I have a thought disorder, and when I bring that thought disorder, when I stop you know, defending and I bring that thought disorder forward in the presence of active love, it dissolves, and I am healed. It's just the way it goes. That's the healing core and the healing power of this man that was called the great physician. So this work is opposed to being about treatment, and you know, treatment can be wonderful. No question about it. There have been some wonderful treatments that have been discovered for symptoms. But in the last analysis, treatment isn't healing. I think any medical professional that offers treatment without offering healing at the same time, without having educated themselves as healers and offering support for healing to people, I think that's criminal. To hold oneself out as a healer, as one who heals others, and offers treatment only, but no deeper insight into the dynamics of what are going on within the structure of the individual and cleaning that up. I think it's just really, it's a sham, and it has created so much suffering in our world today. And it's time to put an end to suffering. If you're acquainted with Yeshua and what he taught, and you actually engage in what he taught, not believe in what he taught, but engage it, your suffering's over. And or you'll come in touch with layers of suffering that you need to clean up, and as you clean it up, as you do your work, those layers of suffering just disappear and dissipate. That's the whole bottom line. And what's left when you do that process? Being, hold the newborn, that's what's left. Literally, the awesome active presence of love. It's who we are. It's what we're designed for. And so that's what we're here to support and be part of. And uh, if you're out there and you have any questions for us, if you're on one of those stations where we can't see you, our call-in number is 563-999-3581. If you're in the chat room and you have a question, you want to dial that number, you'll be listening to the show. And then if you push one, a little hand will go up in the uh, control panel, and Jeannie will know you want to talk to us, and we'll have a conversation. So, Jeannie, do we have anything happening in the chat room or anybody in the control room with a uh, question for us? There's just one other person listening in the chat room, but they're not uh, on there where they can talk. And there's a lot of people on the switchboard, but nobody has their hand up. So we have 18 minutes. If someone presses one, we've got plenty of time for a conversation. 
So how can we support you? What's on your mind? If I had been in your hometown, if I were there today and just walked down off of a platform after saying what I just said, you know, I mean, your local university or your local church, your local library, your local prison or whatever, and I just shared what I shared, and I walked down off the platform. I've completed my presentation. I know that virtually everybody who's listening on the switchboard would walk over to me and say, well, Michael, what about? And that's what this space is for, those what about questions. Now, if, you know, you're listening and you go, well, my voice is a little shaky. I don't know if I want to. Oh, can you make it okay for your voice, voice to be shaky? You've got a hand up. And go ahead. Push one and ask the question. Up. Go for it. All right, let's go for it. All right. They both hit at the same time. I think one is Tim and one is Susan, so I'm going to put them both on. Six one zero, you're on the air. I was thinking about texting you folks this morning to see how your eye is doing, Tim, so I'm glad you're here. How are you doing? Well, a little better. Um Hi, Sue. You moving came in the right direction? But at the same time I did. I know. That's weird. We didn't Great minds think alike, today. right? <laughs> right. Great minds think alike. He's in a different room. Yeah. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. what, what I wanted to ask, Michael, is how do we know that the how do we know that the Kaburis manuscript isn't translated from a Greek translation? How do we know that it was directly written by well, an eyewitness or somebody else, not from the Greek? Well, the, the imprimatur, and it'd be kind of like, you know, you being a lawyer, a notary today would certify, how do I know that, you know, this is an actual court document? Well, there's a notary who certified it. Now, do notaries lie? Yeah, it's been known to happen. But generally speaking, if you have a notarized document, you can trust it, right? So there's right. an imprimatur, a page at the beginning of the manuscript that would be the equivalent of the notary's page uh, of a bishop of the Church of Nineveh, which would have been one of the largest churches in that area, in the uh, uh, Turkey, the manuscript was found in the Kaibor River in Turkey. So that would have been one of the largest churches around 1000 AD. And that imprimatur, which is, and we've had the manuscript carbon dated twice now, actually, at the University of Arizona, which is kind of a primo carbon dating facility. And they tell us that the manuscript is uh, AD 1000 plus or minus 50 years. And the imprimatur says that it's a copy of a 164 AD text. So that makes it uh, a copy of the earliest known first century manuscript of the Aramaic. So that's our verification, or at least the the imprimatur. That's, That's the the notary, and then you just take it and you put it to work. Does it work? And if it works, then I think we've got pretty good verification that it's accurate. Um, how do we know that the one that it was copied from wasn't uh, a translation from the Greek? How do we know that well, was also I, an Aramaic? Does well, the imprimatur say were, that? 
Well, I, I no, the infantry doesn't say, and this wasn't copied in 164 AD or from a 164 AD text. It was, it, no, it does not say that. But the, here's how we know: we look at the Greek translations that are so silly and off the wall and ridiculous that are not in the Kavur's manuscript. So let's say, for instance, um, uh, let's go to uh, uh, let's let me get my brain to some of the the mistranslations the Greek put into. Well, let's let's take this one of love your neighbor. The Greeks say love your neighbor. The the Kabur's manuscript doesn't say love your neighbor. It says have rotten for your neighbor. And rotten oh. is filter in the frontal lobes of the brain it has nothing to do. So there are several places where the um, the Greek mistranslations simply don't appear. And that would be our next okay. step in verifying, is this a copy of a Greek text? And no, it's not. Okay. Yes, I know there are people out there saying, oh, yes, the Peshitta was just a copy of the Greek. But the mistakes that don't appear, for me, uh, come to a standard. And, and it's interesting, you know, Dan McDougall that I spoke about earlier was an attorney. And in doing the translation work, he directed the translation with these 25 uh, translators, and he used the rules of evidence as developed for a courtroom to determine what gets into the translation as to whether or not it's accurate. And the mistranslations that the Greeks put in there just don't exist in the uh, in the Kaburis. Okay, that makes sense. What did you want to ask, Sue? Oh, I like this question that you asked, Tim. That's been on my mind, too, but I just didn't think it was answerable, so I appreciate your answer, Michael. Tim's sister has been a, a sort of a, an experiential Aramaic scholar for years. In fact, she went to one oh, of really? your early worksheet, workshops. Her name is, is now Rahmane Myers. She calls herself Rahmane, uh-huh. but... She right. might have been Claudia. Obviously Claudia from the Aramaic. Yeah. Right. right. Well, I've been Sweet. talking well, to her Well, tell her I said hello. <laughs> I will. She, um, she gets pretty hot under the collar about this whole thing. She says a great deal of precious material was suppressed because of institutional preferences and patriarchal mind stuff. And yeah. she said George Lamsa. She's right. And uh, uh, yeah, you didn't want to say it, but she she just said, for me, I don't concern myself with the scholarly picking apart of this and that. What I do is just what you do, Michael. I apply it, and if it fits and helps me grow and helps me heal, this is what I'll use. And it's it's the Aramaic every time and yet it's very interesting i've had talks with my daughter who's a traditional episcopal priest and she says no no the koine greek was the first because uh aramaic was not a written language but it had the same alphabet as hebrew so it makes me think why then was it not written if there was a written alphabet it must have been <laughs> if written there was an alphabet <laughs> yeah yeah well so, and- you know, you can go back even in the Greek translations. There's one particular place where the final words on the cross that Yeshua speaks, and and what the Greek translators say in in that passage is, and we've left this in the original Aramaic, 
Aramaic was a written language. There's just no question and no doubt whatsoever. Yeah. But, you know, the Greek scholars in their ivory towers, and, you, you know, just take a look around the country at how many Greek scholars sit in their ivory towers making their, you know, 80, 100, 200, $500,000 a year, whatever they're doing from their scholarship. What happens to that whole system if one day they all wake up and say, you know something? It wasn't Greek to start with. It was Aramaic. And therefore, I know know nothing, and I have to start over. And now my whole financial structure collapses. How much blockage of truth do you suppose that induces into the conversation? Oh, of course. So it's just, it's like, you know, it's silly. But, and you you mentioned Lamsa and and Rachmane's conversation about Lamsa. You know, he worked at Unity Village at the time when he was doing his translation work. And this was at a point where, you know, the good Christian folks were literally threatening to string him up, to kill him. Oh, my God. And Mm -hmm. I understand that he said that in his translation, he made approximately 1,600 changes out of what he said should have been 10,000. In translating and bringing it back to accuracy from the Greek to the Aramaic. And he made those changes because the others, he was afraid they would literally kill him. Oh, my God. You know, there's there's, uh, quite a bit of, uh, of viciousness and violence in the mind of... Uh, the so-called theologian that that is challenged with here's what the man said in Aramaic and then mm. here's what the Greek translations are. Yeshua did mm. not think in, in Greek. He did not speak in Greek. And, you know, mm. as my simple example of, you know, you've got a low body temperature. I mean, just take something as simple as that and multiply yeah. that by a thousand instances where the Aramaic, uh, the Aramaic is a very, it's a small language. There aren't a lot of words in Aramaic. And so yeah. there are multiple meanings and there are deeply meaningful um, passages that are totally and completely idiomatic. And you can be the best translator in the world and you can't translate mm. an idiom. You've just got to know what yeah. the idiom means. Right. So. Right. Well, and, and one yeah, thing for me, the, the final is, uh, go ahead. So, you, no, you go ahead. You're, for you, the final is. No, I, I, no, I was just going to agree with Rothman that, you know, it, it's not about belief. It's about if you apply it, does it work? There's the, the ultimate yeah. verification. If you apply well, the she, Greek, love your neighbor. Well, look at how many people are out mm-hmm. there slaughtering each other in the name of Christ. I know. You know, I come to bring you the love of my master Christ. If you won't accept it, I'll kill you. Excuse me. Something's right. wrong with that translation. I know it. <laughs> something's oh, off I know the, it. It's so wall. disturbing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Something one thing she did say. Really? Uh, yeah. One thing she did say card. is mm-hmm. 80% of what... Christians have in our culture from the Greek is okay. And now maybe that's, I was surprised it was so much considering what you said about Lamsa and the thousands more uh, corrections he would have made. She said 80%. I mean, we can limp along and we are limping along. We're doing terribly in some departments, but she said, this is the way it's going to be. But for her, she is a, she, she is actually a, 
her, Tim's and her mother are, is, was Jewish, and so she has studied Judaism. And at her mother's funeral, she actually said the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic and the, uh, or Hebrew. What was it, Tim? Was it Aramaic or Hebrew? I think it was Aramaic. Yeah. Um, anyway, she's, she's one of the unity people, uh, you know, just trying to find the truth in any tradition, but mainly focused on Christianity because that's how she was reared more or less. And her parents were, right. were not practicing e- either way particularly. And I'm sort of going off here, but... Um, yeah. And Aramaic predated Hebrew. Hebrew oh, as did? Arabic is a daughter language of Aramaic. Wow. They're offspring languages, both Arabic and Hebrew. In fact, I I can remember Dan, Dan, uh, way back, this goes back 50 years ago, Dan went into and taught uh, a piece of the emotional maturity instruction in a synagogue in Atlanta. Mm. And the... um, the uh, rabbi of the synagogue afterward just lavished praise on him and said, thank you for teaching us how to understand our language again. Oh, how gorgeous. I was introduced to a, 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 a rabbi in South Florida. Actually, I've got a phone call that came in last night from the fellow who introduced me. This goes back about 15 years ago. And, um, you know, he he was sharing, he's a congregant of this rabbi, this gentleman who introduced us, and he shared this is just so on target with what we are working with. And, and he introduced us, and when I met him and uh, said, well, you know, our work goes back and we're working with the Aramaic. I mean, he literally, this guy's about 6'6". Six, six. I was sitting at his kitchen table, and I'd never had a schnuzzle before. But, but this guy was about 6'6". Six, six. When I said I was working with the Aramaic, he's like, well, all of our wisdom keepers in the Judaic tradition were Aramaic. And he got up from his seat, and he came over and put his arms there. So let me give you a schnuzzle. He gave me this big hug. And he's uh-huh. like, yes, please come and speak at our synagogue. Mm. Wow. It's all Aramaic. It, it isn't Greek. Wow, just, that's so exciting. That's isn't. so exciting. Mm. Well, it's um, she, it's been very fun to talk to her because she has been pushing our reading and informing ourselves about Aramaic for years and years and years and kept running up against stone walls, particularly with Tim's... Um, after Tim's father died, his mother remarried a wonderful Christian man who was very open-minded too, but he used to argue against her, her arguments for the Aramaic being the real thing. And he said things like, yes, the Aramaic is an interesting language. It's, it hasn't got much vocabulary, so you could put a number of meanings on any one word and you can make it pretty much say what you want. And so we're not going to do that. And that was, Tim, that was Bob Burge. And so... <laughs> That was the end of we'll go to, all that. We'll go to the, Greek, we'll go to the Greek where we've already established what those meanings are going to be in advance. Right. <laughs> I know. Oh, rather I, than, he didn't even. Okay. Mm. Rather than saying, <laughs> ah, so clearly with it being a small language and multiple meanings, which is true, and many idioms, which is true, rather than, well, then we're going to do an intensive scrutiny so that we can establish right. what those words actually meant in the first century. And that's what 
Dan did with 25 translators. I mean, he was paying right. 25 That's different fabulous. of the world's top aramicists, and he would send a passage out to all 25 of them, get the translations back, and if they weren't accurate, or pardon me, if they weren't consistent, he'd send it back out and say, something wrong here, and, you know, we, we need to do more work on this. And then when when 25 translators all agreed and said, this is it, then we it still wasn't considered that the translation was accurate. The next step was, in order to verify it, was, and this was the part that I played in it, I don't speak, read, or write the Aramaic language. As the director of the, the Kabbalah's Foundation, I'm not allowed to. And oh. the, uh, what, what happened is we'd take what the translator said then and bring it into the laboratory of the classroom, you know, like an intensive. You, know, you came to a laboratory mm-hmm. when you guys came mm-hmm. to that intensive this summer. And yeah. does it work? Once we had the consistency of the 25 translators and then it worked, we said, okay, now we've got something that is valid. Wow. How far as, along as are to, you? You know, there's not really a way. I don't have a way that I can quantify um, how much of the translation has been done or not been done. That's it, it, It's really going to take having the funding and starting the translation work up again and gathering a team that's capable wow. of uh, of taking it to the next level to really establish that and see where it needs to go. And mm-hmm. so, and, and of course, we don't know what we don't know yet from the Aramaic. Yeah. But what we do right. know certainly opens a space for monumental healing. And so we know we've got a significant amount of it accurately understood. And it'll be nice when we get it heading off to the next level when we've got the funding. To and do a that really and basically very important part. The important part about healing is it. I mean, isn't that pretty much. It, we'd love to have other stuff, but if we're applying this, we could do a heck of a lot of healing in the world. Everything else is handled. Absolutely. Yeah. That takes care of it all. That's the core of it. Oh, boy. I'm in agreement, and we're down to the last few seconds, so I'm going to say thank you, Tim, for opening with that question, and uh, Susan, for continuing the conversation. Tell Rockmanay I said hello. I'd love to chat with her. love to have her come on the show, and let's have a conversation. In the meantime, everybody, have the best year yet of your eternal life. It is an awesome gift to give the world.